we've been able to engage in a, in a great thing here. Uh, I hope you sense that. Uh, from our call to worship, we were drawn to give consideration uh, to the God who is worthy of our praise. Remember that we are in a series uh, from Galatians, and if you uh, want to turn there uh, as I'm speaking and as we get ready to intercede on behalf of some brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Galatians chapter 5, you'll be reminded that uh, we are in a series where our subject is reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world. What we just did in praising God and rehearsing the gospel is foreign to a fallen world. So we were giving witness and testimony of the greatness of God and His goodness. And we were reminding ourselves of this. And I will say for those who are here who have not yet profess Christ, who have not yet trusted Christ, it was witness and testimony to you that this gospel that we talk about, this gospel that we sing about, more importantly, this God that we are constantly pointing to is the sovereign God of the universe who is worthy of every man's praise. The incredible thing is, is that the only people who want to praise Him are those who trust in Him. Because see, why would someone who doesn't trust in God have any desire to praise Him? Well, the answer is they will not. So we're here today saying we believe in God, we praise Him, and we praise Him because we trust in Him, and we trust in Him because of who He is, and we trust in Him because He is, get this, because He is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. In fact, He is the only one who is trustworthy. We praise Him. We have in our worship guides a place for intercession. I want us to pray today. Uh, for uh, several of our local ministry partners. Uh, we spent a season through our identity series where we were praying for Oak Valley Church and our community. Uh, we also want to pray for uh, our ministry partners. Reminded last week we prayed for sister churches in the area. Uh, we want to pray for those today who are not the church. Uh, they are in a local congregation they are as believers if they are all in fact who work in these places believers they are in the big C they are in the larger context of the church we're not praying for them as a church today we are praying for them as ministry partners those who do specific things in carrying out um, the things that God has called us to do and they're not carrying out the mission of the church, we as a church partner with them because we recognize that part of our mission as a church is to be a part of the things that they lead in and we connect with their objectives and their goals. 
uh, one of those, uh, Lifeline Pregnancy Center. Uh, for those who are uh, finding your way back here over the course of these four weeks and first four weeks in October, as we talk about cultural issues, one of the things that came up last week was abortion. Uh, and we will refer to abortion along the way as one of the cultural issues. Um, but they stand as a ministry to point young women and young men and women who are coming together to make that decision together as to whether to keep a child. And it may be a husband and wife uh, who uh, have conceived and they are trying to determine do they want to carry out the pregnancy and move forward uh, and grant life in that way. Or it could be a, a young woman who uh, has conceived out of wedlock, whatever it may be. They are there as a ministry to stand and points to life and say, give life to that child. Value that life. Uh, and they help uh, those young ladies and those people and families work through those things uh, and even help uh, in the way of directing them toward adoption uh, if that becomes an option for them. So we want to continue to remember the work in the ministry of Lifeline Pregnancy Center uh, and our partnership with them. We also remember that here in our community, and if you're riding around and you do any traveling in Wilmington, you regularly pass people uh, who are uh, living in the woods, who are homeless, and you regularly pass people who uh, may have roofs over their head, uh, but who are unable to make ends meet and are need and in need of food. Uh, we partner uh, with Vigilant Hope, uh, and part of their ministry and the larger part of their ministry uh, is to provide help and service and aid uh, to these persons. So we partner with them uh, to help bring that about, and we want to remember them in prayer. And then uh, you don't hear us say a lot about the Bear Foundation, uh, but the Bear Foundation is also one of our partners. Uh, some of, um, in fact, we have, we have, uh, family members of our church families uh, who are together today because God has used the Bear Foundation in the course of their life to help them live out uh, their mission in God. And uh, I'll point to one right down here uh, to my left. Uh, and we bless the Lord for Bobby and Lori in Phoenix uh, and their first connections together uh, came through that organization. Uh, I want to encourage you to let's pray for them uh, as they see families come together uh, and as they see children uh, have uh, moms and dads who love them and care for them uh, and will bring them up uh, and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I know that's kind of a, a, long, uh, a long process there for us to consider, but we need to know what we're praying for. So let's lift them up in prayer. Father, we ask that you grant grace and mercy, provisions, wisdom, direction, and continued resources, Father, so that Lifeline Pregnancy Center, the Bear Foundation, and Vigilant Hope can continue to do the work that you have called them to do and to aid us in providing infrastructure to do the work that you have called us to do we pray these things in christ's name amen
you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, look at Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we'll be reading verses 16 through 25 uh, again, as we did last week. Uh, we will point to three things in this text at large. You'll see that this is the text that we'll refer to uh, again over the course of the next seven weeks past this. Um, each time getting a little closer. Let me use this illustration for just a minute. How many of you have stood back in a room and looked through the crack in the blinds or the crack in a curtain and look outside? I think all of us have. What do you discover when you do that? Your field of vision is very limited. You take a step closer to the window and that field of vision becomes greater and as you continue to step toward the window as you get closer what happens that field of vision gets broader and broader and broader one of the things that we are doing with this text is it is a window uh, into this thing of reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world and each Week we are stepping a little closer to the window so that we can get a broader vision of what it is that uh, God uh, has for us, has for you, has for Oak Valley Church as we give consideration as to how we reflect His glory in a fallen world. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, uh, J.I. Packer wrote these words. When we see what God, through His Son and His Spirit, is doing for us and in us, we can better understand what it is He calls us to do for Him and with Him. Let's hear that again. When we see what God, through His Son and His Spirit, is doing for us and in us, we can better understand what it is He calls us to do 
for him and with him. Last week we looked at why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. The theme is simply that the law cannot and will not justify or sanctify. Any attempt to appeal to the law, and I will say any works-based means to salvation, uh, is futile. And we can say it this way because this is the message of the gospel. Any attempt to seek a relationship with God, to seek salvation, eternal life, hope of fulfillment in this life, genuine joy, peace, and hope, apart from trusting in the absolute and complete atoning work of Christ in his death and resurrection, preceded by his life, is futile. It's futile. One of the things that Booney was pointing to just a moment ago, and it struck a chord in my heart, is that we often do the things that we do that people may see as acts of love. We are doing them for ourselves so that we look good in front of people. So that our reputation is intact. So that we are seen as a kind and gracious and giving and caring person. When the fact is, there is really no love at all except for self. Works, kinds of righteousness. Paul wrote, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. That's chapter 2 in verse 16. And then he goes on to write, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? His point was, is that we cannot be justified or sanctified by works of the law by any means other than the atoning work of Christ. We also stated last week that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who trust in Christ's atoning work for their salvation is an objective reality. It's not a subjective feeling. What do we mean by that? Well, a believer may not feel indwelled by the Spirit of God. In fact, what does it feel like to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? While he may not feel like it, a believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And if he is a believer, he is a believer because the Holy Spirit dwells in him or her. Paul wrote, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He wrote that to Romans Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. So we are justified by the atoning work of Christ alone, and we are sanctified by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that sets us apart and makes us holy. Now this brings us to this point, and we're moving into, this, into the text. Let's go back to Packer's statement just a moment. 
He said that there are two things that God does for us. He does His work of justification by and through His Son, and He does His work of sanctification by and through His Spirit. And these two things enable us to understand better what it is that He has called us to do for Him and with Him. Get that. For Him and with Him. Notice the participation in participating in what God is doing. In other words, He is pointing to the fact that we are saved for a particular purpose. He has an interest in our salvation. And it is the fulfillment of His purpose, or better yet, uh, the fulfillment of this particular purpose that He has in mind. So the question is, is what is the purpose? What is the purpose? Well, we see evidence of that purpose, if you will, in verse 22, when we hear, but the fruit of the Spirit over against all these other things of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, faith, meekness, temperance, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. There is a purpose even in the Spirit of God being in us, in the believer, to sanctify Him. But how do we come to understand what that purpose is? Because we can talk about God has a purpose for me, and you hear that often, you read it often, we have been talking about God has a purpose for us. What is our purpose? Well, we have stated it in loving God supremely, loving others sacrificially, and living in the world distinctively. But how do we carry that out? And that's what we've been spending the last several weeks on. And it is not something that is easily stated and then moved on. It is something that we give attention to and have to to be able to carry it out. So what did Jesus do in his own life? It's a reasonable question. Well, let's hear what Jesus did. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, we hear, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We sang of that just a moment ago. And then, in John chapter 17, we hear these words from Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he's praying to God, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That the Son may may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do the work that the Father gave Jesus to do was a specific work. And we read in Scripture that He was obedient to that work even to His death on the cross. So what is it that God has commanded or directed believers to do? What is it that God has commanded or directed the church to do? That would be a reasonable question because we would then begin to understand 
by looking at what God has done through His Son and the indwelling of His Spirit in our life, that it is specific to carrying out what God intends for us to do. Well, in general, it is to glorify Him. But what is it that glorifies Him? What were we saved for? Well, we were saved to glorify God. Jesus fulfilled His purpose, as we said, and was obedient to God. What is it that we are to be obedient to? Well, let's hear what Jesus has to say. And Jesus gives this instruction in Acts 1.8. I couldn't get away from it when I began to think through this text and what is being implied and how the fruit of the Spirit bears this out. He said, and you will be my witnesses. Now, we've all heard that. Some of us have heard that hundreds of times. Some of us have quoted that hundreds of times. I have. You are to be my witnesses. That is, you will bear testimony of the glory of God in His saving work that He accomplished in and through. Jesus was saying, you will be my witnesses. So He says, you you will be giving testimony to the glory of God in that work in me and what I have done in my death and resurrection. What Jesus directs his initial followers to do, he directs us to do. Hear that again. What Jesus directs his initial followers to do, he directs us to do. He commissions them and He commissions us to be His witnesses. Which is why we rehearsed the gospel that Paul preached last week through Galatians. I hope you got a chance to to write those verses down. We're not going to go back over them this morning. Just simply, if you will, just pay attention to that. And if you don't have those, let me know. We mentioned last week when Paul rehearsed this gospel that he had stated that loss of the gospel puts the gospel and the witness of the church in jeopardy or another way of saying that it makes it impossible to the, for the church to reflect the glory of God in a fallen world if the gospel is lost now that brings us to this point that is in Galatians 1 4 and if you will turn there The Lord Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So Paul, right at the beginning of the letter says, this is why Jesus gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. And then we find ourselves in our text and we hear this uh, walking in the flesh, but then we hear this walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit leads us. Well, the word deliver means two things. First, it means for the believer that they are rescued from all the damning effects of this world, sin, temptation, and all that is evil. Now, pay close attention to that. 
Because if you're paying attention to anything in your life and you haven't given over to the world, you know the struggles that you encounter in living in this world. Which is the reason why we're looking at how we reflect the glory of God in a fallen world. And it's also why we're coming back here this evening again to find out how the Christian is to respond in this atheistic culture. Because we know the challenges that come in living in this fallen world. But Paul said that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to do what? To deliver us from this present evil age but we're here we're here we're not removed from the world but we are saved from it and it also means that we will be saved from it for all eternity I was reminded of this again Friday evening when Janice was I was in the bathroom Janice was outside of the bathroom door standing at the kitchen counter and I overheard a part of a conversation and I could tell that the news wasn't good but I didn't know where it was coming from and I didn't know what it was about well the, the long and short of it is whenever I stepped out I found out she told me and conveyed that one of our good friends from Salemburg uh, had passed away Tom Dudley and immediately I began to recall my time with Tom and his family as we ministered there. Last night I had an opportunity to send his wife a, a message and recalled some of the things about Tom. But this is the first thought that came to my mind. is that Tom has been delivered from this evil age. That he is in the presence of God. But for those of us who have trusted Christ... We have also been delivered from this evil age and we are still here. Both of these truths, mind you, are the will of God. Notice what he says there in 1 verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So he has given himself, God has sent him, he has given himself, he has delivered us from this present evil age and notice what is particularly important which is why we sang about our sovereign God and we repeated words that were very similar to that because that is in fact the will of God I want you to hold on to that for just a moment that is the will of God this is God's will Christ has saved us according to God's will the Holy Spirit indwells us according to God's will both for the purpose of delivering us from this evil age. And don't miss this. The Galatian Christians, like every Christian, were born again. They were not born believers. So if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, then you are not yet born again. But look around at everyone here who does profess Christ and just know that they did not come out of their mother's womb as Christians. We all started in the very same place. We were in absolute need of God to save us. And the only way that we could be saved is through the atoning work of Christ. Get that. 
And Paul knew that, and he's writing to the Galatians because he spent time with them, and he had preached to them, and he had taught them, and he had seen them come to Christ. He had experienced the evidence of them having been born again, and he is pressing hard on this issue with the gospel because he knows that the only hope for others to be born again is that the gospel be held and kept and taught. The gospel that was the power of salvation for them was the gospel that was the power of salvation for everyone who would believe. Not just for some, but for all. That's why we are so adamant about continuing to talk about, to preach, to teach, to sing, to pray, to reflect on, to give attention to, to remind each other of the gospel. Their salvation was purposeful to God. It was God's will. Do you, do you understand that? It was God's will for you to be saved, those of you who have believed. God purposed for His Son to atone for your sin. He purposed for the Holy Spirit to live in you. This is an important thing. This is a reason why we said last week, just kind of brushing over it, that it was objective. It was objective because God planned it and purposed it. Their salvation was purposeful to God because they were to be witnesses. They were to be witnesses of the glory of God and His saving work in Christ. So how does a person be a witness? Well, they testify to God's glory. And that what we think about when we think about a witness We've got an assistant DA. If there is a witness, there is an expectation for there to be some kind of verbal testimony. And that's true. And that's no less that. But there is something else in being a witness. They were to be a witness of a changed life. A life that the Holy Spirit indwells. The life, the witness of the reflection of God who indwells that person. It is a life that reflects an indwelling God. And here's where we come. That's the reason that when we get to the text here and we hear about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, that we give attention to what kind of life this is. For the rest of our time here this morning and next Sunday, we will unpack this text and look at three things. We will look at this life as a life of continual conflict. We'll also acknowledge here that it is a life that's not only of continual conflict, but it is a life of continual growth. And it is a life of continual grace. What does this life look like in you? Well, here's what it looks like in me. And I'm going to use some of Packer's words to communicate it. 
I am one who seeks to walk in the Spirit. And yet as I do, I continue to recognize in my own life that there is nothing in my life that is as good as it should be. I continue to fight hard. I fight hard, hoping, pushing, striving that all of these things that restrain me from being as good as I should be, all of these clogging things that are pulling at me and actually bringing out that, as Packer said, inbred perversity. I'm continually fighting that. Continually fight the motivational sin in my life. At least in the best works of the Holy Spirit. That is the best works of Him. But when I look at my best works, I realize continually that I'm defiled. At my very best, I'm not good. So what does that mean for me? Well, it means that I depend on God every moment. I depend on the pardoning mercy of Christ every moment. If I didn't, you know what? I'd be lost. If I didn't trust in Him, I would be lost. I continue to ask Him, plead with Him for the filling of the Spirit because I need the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life. In light of my own weaknesses and the inconsistency of my own heart, I pray that the Spirit will energize me to the end so that I can win this inward struggle. I'm reminded of what Packer said. You cannot achieve as much in the way of holiness as you want to achieve, but you should want it. I believe this is a fair summary of what Paul is trying to communicate here in the passage that we read here in verses 16 through 25. I know that there's a lot of theology in the other parts in pointing to the gospel. We have looked at that last week and we have spent time with that this morning reminding us that that is foundational. But what is formational about our reflecting the glory of God in a fallen world is that we live here and that we're not good. Not even those who are saved. There's a continual conflict. We know this is true for two reasons. I want us to look at it. Verse 16. Paul has to say, okay, listen. He has to say, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you catch that? Paul is writing to the believers, and he is saying that you have desires, but those desires are under constant attack and those desires he's speaking of there when he says that keep you from doing the things you want to do he's talking about the things of honoring God the things that are consistent with loving God the things that are consistent with loving him supremely the things that are consistent with loving others sacrificially the things that are consistent and looking distinctively in the world those desires are there but they are being countered and they are being pushed against by the desires of the flesh. And he said, he said, to have victory in that necessarily means that we walk by the Spirit. That we walk by the Spirit. The very command itself is stating that the Spirit of God is in you, but you Walk by the Spirit. What are we saying? We're saying that this life is a life of continual conflict. Now I want you to know that the reason that we're going to press in on this for some time this morning is because I believe that there is tension in our own lives when we profess Christ and yet we see and recognize and acknowledge, whether others do or not, the sin that is in our own life. Now some of you know me well, and those of you who know me well know that, that I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm not holy. Others of you may have a picture in your mind of people that are in this room or in other places who profess Christ that somehow they have reached a place of almost reached a place of sinless perfection. But the scripture doesn't teach that. And if that is your idea of what it means to be a believer and you, and you think in your mind that the only way that I can be a believer is if I reach this point of sinless perfection, then you have fallen into the trap of believing something that Scripture does not teach. And Paul clearly states here that there is a, this is a life that is continually embattled. There's this conflict that goes on. We know that this is true because he points to it here, but he also points to it uh, in other passages. Here he says that the spirit and the flesh are at war. So he says, therefore, walk by the spirit. Remember last week we mentioned that Paul refers to the Holy Spirit, and we've said it twice already. He refers to the Holy Spirit five times. And in verse 16, there is the command to walk by the spirit. So we see that this isn't something that just is passively dealt with in the life of a believer. In other words, it's not that God indwells us with the Holy Spirit and now all of a sudden we become perfect and we sit back and we let go and let God. No, there is an engagement 
on our part as we walk by the Spirit. So Paul says, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. He does so, and here's why, because in varying degrees, every believer struggles with the desires of the flesh. Every believer struggles with the desires of the flesh. Your pastor that you grew up with did. If you grew up as a pastor's child, he did. Your pastors today do. You do. Now this is not a justification for it. We just need to understand the reality of this is that every believer at some level, varying degrees, struggles with the desires of the flesh. And the Bible doesn't speak of sinless perfection for believers, though there are some who will hold to this view. Writing to a group of believers, John wrote this, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now listen, He goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Some of you will be familiar with this text. The beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans about the same thing, about the very same thing that he's writing to the Galatians about. His context is different, but the message is the same. Paul writes, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, remember, Paul is writing here to the Romans post-conversion, post-acknowledging the fact that he uh, is an apostle. And yet he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So he is acknowledging at least what? Nothing good comes from the flesh. Nothing good in him is connected with his flesh. But what is he also acknowledging? That the flesh is still there. That those nagging desires are still there. For I have the desire to do what is right. If you underline, you may want to underline that part. But at least remember it. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now Paul's not trying to get out from under the responsibility of it, but hold your place right there and listen to this just a moment because here's what he wrote to the Galatians. 
In chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Hold that thought for just a moment. We're going to come back to it, but I wanted you to hear it there. So he said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, an evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then to go back to what we just read, Paul wrote to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Was Paul conflicted? No, he wasn't conflicted in the sense of not knowing whether he was a believer or not, not knowing whether the Spirit indwelled him or not, not conflicted about his justification. He wasn't conflicted about what God intended for him. He wasn't conflicted about the will of God in the work of Christ on his behalf in his atoning work. He was simply acknowledging that his life, this life that we are living, seeking to reflect the glory of God in a fallen world, was a life that was continually in conflict because there was a war inside of him and there is a war inside of you and there is a war inside of me. He was simply stating that even as a believer, there is constant conflict between the flesh and the Holy Spirit that lives in the believer. Think about that for just a moment. And your question should be, why? Have you ever asked that question? Why? If God has saved me from sin, why? If Christ has died to deliver me from this present evil age and that doesn't immediately run to eternity, why? Why do I continue to struggle? Why doesn't God just make me perfect to where I won't sin again? You know He can. He will in eternity. You do know that, don't you? That for those who trust Christ, part of the thing that I long for about heaven is that I will not have to deal with the war inside of me any longer because God will make me in that way perfect and it will not in any way squelch my will. It's just that my will at that point will be so consumed by Him and His glory that I will not want to sin, nor will I ever sin, because sin will never again be in the presence of God. And if that is true, then why not now? 
There may be some of you here that are had these thoughts that haven't yet professed Christ that this may be part of the reason why you're trying to figure out is that you understand as we looked at this morning that God is worthy of praise and He's holy and I hear that objectively the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of a person who is a believer. In fact, he or she is not a believer unless the Spirit of God lives in them and if that is true, it seems to be inconsistent with what I see what I sense in my own life, it's even inconsistent with what I sense in that one that I think is probably the best Christian that I know. That's reasonable. We have minds to think that way. Why? I don't know entirely. We sang this morning that there are things about God that we don't know and can't know. But it seems, at least, from God's Word, that somehow our continued struggle with the flesh and His continual work in sanctifying us brings Him more glory. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 1 for just a moment. It just sounds like it. I want to point you to two prayers that we prayed. It's incredible as I go back and look at them. You remember the prayers that we were praying during our 21 days of prayer and fasting? We prayed these things and I'm grappling with these things as we're working through them. But listen, Philippians 1, 8 through 11, Paul writes, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And when we begin dealing with the fruit, we will get to the love that we introduced today by looking at 1 Corinthians 13. But he said this love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is the fruit of the Spirit that comes through Jesus Christ to what end? To the glory and praise of God. It seems that this constant battle and struggle and conflict we are in brings us to a place that we continue to yield by faith to the work of God to strengthen us and hold us up in the midst of our weaknesses. And it is in the display of that faith and trust in God and the ongoing sanctifying work of God in us that brings glory to God. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Paul writes again, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good 
and every work of faith by what? You want to say it together? His power. Not ours, His. So, for what? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does all that mean? It means that God has not yet made us perfect and has in His sovereignty continued to allow for this life to be continually worked out and lived out in the midst of this fallen world with us not only fighting what is outside of us, but us fighting what is inside of us, the desires of the flesh, so that as we yield to Him, which is why Paul points to the fruit of the Spirit, mind you, which as we yield to Him, now brings glory to him. So here is the here's the push. Okay? Here's the push. The push is is that when we get to verses 22 and 23, when we are looking at the ways the glory of God is reflected in our lives, we understand that it is displayed in the midst and through the conflict that we have in our own hearts as we push against our flesh, pushes against the work of the Spirit that is there freeing and overtaking us in the midst of sanctification. Now you may ask, How then do I know if what I am sensing in my life is a conflict between the indwelling of the Spirit and the continuation of my flesh or whether I'm just lost? That's a reasonable question. If you're here today and you're listening and you're giving you're really giving attention to what's being said, and you probably have that question. Go back to Galatians chapter 5 and look again at where we stopped the end of verse 17. It says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here, is the answer. What is the desire of your heart? Some of you may be asking this question now because you're trying to work through am I a believer, am I not? I haven't professed Christ but I'm grappling through this Am I a believer or am I not? What is the desire of your heart?
Is your desire to please God and to honor Him? Even though you know in your own life you struggle in those areas, but your desire really is you want God and you want to honor Him and you want to live for Him. Because you see, that desire will not be there apart from the Spirit of God being in you because it is the Spirit, listen, it is the Spirit of God that is longing for God and that Spirit is influencing you, the Holy Spirit of God influencing you, controlling you, working in you, causing there to be a change in your desires. You see that? I mentioned that there are two reasons that we know that it is a life of continued conflict. And I've alluded, spoke clearly about one and have alluded to the other. We've heard it from Scripture. That's what we just looked at. And the second reason we know that it's true is because of our own experience. And we've talked about that. Every one of us here who professes Christ struggles with sin. And the tension often rests in the fact that we know that sin offends God. It strikes at the authority of God. It strikes at His goodness. And yet we know that the Spirit of God indwells those He saves and is saving. The question for us today is this. What is your desire? What is your desire? I want to honor God. I want to please Him. I want it to be clear in my life that I want to honor Him and that I want my life to bless Him and I want to bear witness and testimony of Him and His glory and I want my life to reflect that. I thank God that that desire is there because God has made that desire to be there. What about you?